May be seated. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. It is a joy to get together with you guys uh, this morning and see all of you guys here. We are going to be concluding a series that we began uh, in uh, January, taking us through all winter, called Preeminence. His story, our practice. And in this, we've been looking at Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse uh, 18, where it says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church, and in all things, he is to be preeminent, meaning first. And so we've been teasing that out on what that looks like in Jesus being the one who is over all of history, God who creates us in our sin who rejects and rebels God. God pursuing us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection. And then where we're at now in the hope of his return and restoration of all things. And so as we kind of close this series, we've been talking about what it means to gather, what it means to, to give, what it means to, to grow, and what does it mean to go on mission. I want to talk to us today and have a conversation a bit around purpose. So I want you to ask yourself, why am I here? And maybe here on Sunday morning, but if we could broaden it a bit, like why, why am I here? Why do you exist? Why do I exist? It's a basic, substantial question of existence. What is the source of your being and what is the, the purpose of your being? What, like to put it another way, What's the meaning of life? That as Christians, we believe that we actually have an answer to that. That the existential question of our being can be answered. Christians, um, historically, you know, we, we teach and we disciple one another uh, in a lot of different ways, but one of it's through the spoken word, and there's this thing called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is just a series of questions and answers you know, geared towards helping people retain some information. And the first, first question is this. What is the chief end of man or, or humanity? Like, what's our, what's our purpose why do we exist? What is the chief end of man? And the Westminster Catechism answers it this way. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That that is actually why you exist. That we believe that God is the source of our life. So he's the source of our purpose. So when you're like, why, why am I here it's because God wants you to be here. What is my purpose? Well, God has a purpose for you, and that purpose is to reflect his glory. So, so just, to, just to declare, just to exist as a created being in the image and likeness of God, your existence shows that there is a creator. And the fact that aspects of you are very good says that is a good and loving creator who made you good. But I love that second part of the answer to enjoy him forever. Your existence is not to, supposed to be meaningless. Your existence will include suffering, but it's not meant to include only suffering. That your actual existence, our actual existence, includes joy. Enjoying God also includes enjoying his creation, enjoying relationships with one another, enjoying good food and good drink. That that's actually part of why you're here. 
And so when we talk about Jesus being preeminent, meaning Jesus being first, that we move closer to our purpose, we are more aligned with our purpose when we're moving closer to Jesus, when we're thinking, I exist to glorify God who made me, and I exist to enjoy him and his creation and his people forever. And so the result of reorienting our life around Jesus is supposed to be uh, like a deeper sense of God's glory and who he is, but also a greater joy and enjoyment of all that he's made us to be. That is why you exist. And so like I said, when you move closer to Christ, you're moving closer to your purpose. And yet we know that there's, we know there's sin in the world. So, so we know that there's ways that, that we rob God of glory, try to place ourselves up as God. We know there's ways that we've been harmed by others where our joy has been taken or steal, stolen or robbed, right? And so in our inability to glorify God, preventing our ability to have joy, God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. He's like, no, no, they're not gonna be able to fulfill their purpose without me, so I will pursue them. And he shows up in Jesus. And so that leads us to a second question. Why do we exist? Why do you exist to enjoy God and glorify him forever, right? Why do we exist? When I'm talking about we, I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about the people of God, individual orphan sinners, exiled, separated from God, who've been forgiven, who've been welcomed, who've been brought into a family, brought into a kingdom as full citizens. You're now not just an individual, but you're now part of a people. And so as a church, we should be asking, we should be asking, why do we, the church, exist? See, Colossians 1.18 says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So when we ask a question of existence, what's our source? Our source is Jesus. Our purpose is Jesus. He's the head. He's the one who, who saved us through his work on the cross. He's the one that empowers us through his resurrection and through the Holy Spirit. So the fact that a church or any church exists at all is but by the grace of God. And so the church meaning all Christians across all times, is a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-generational uh, collection of people brought together with Jesus as the head of this global multi-generational body that has existed across millennia and across continents. And throughout the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus says things like, like I will build my church, and we, we feel like we know what that word means, but it's a Greek word that means ekklesia. And ekklesia means a gathering of the summoned. That Jesus is a king who has called you to be part of his people. You were out alone in exile, and the king says, no, you are no longer a rebel because I have forgiven you, because I've paid for your sin. I am calling you back home. You've been summoned, and you're now part of a gathering of the summoned. So the church exists because she's been summoned by the king, and she's being built up by Christ and the purpose of the church is to fulfill Christ's mission in and to the world. 
And so we're like, well, what, what, is, what is that about? I mean, what have we been given from Christ to, to know what that looks like? Well, one guy wanting to know, like, Jesus, can you sum up all of your teachings? Like, what's the greatest commandment? He says, oh, well, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, love God with your whole being, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he says, in that is, is all of the law and prophets. That, that's all of what, like, the encompassing of his teaching. And we, we always say this, um, like, that is kindergarten simple, but grad school complex, right? Oh, just love God and love people. Well, that, that's huge. And then, well, okay, that's what we're supposed to do, but what are we supposed to, to, to be, like, we want to embody that, but what are we, what are we supposed to, to embrace? Well, we're to embrace what he calls, in this section of Scripture we're about to read, the Great Commission. That the church exists in the world to embody the Great Commandment and to embrace the Great Commission. So like actually the church has a mission statement. And you're like, well, okay, Chris, I know you've got a marketing background. Is that just marketing jargon? Like it's important to have like good taglines and all that kind of stuff, stuff that's sticky that people can remember. Like this is, this is Jesus' last words before he ascends to his disciples. He says, this is what you guys are gonna be about. And so here at Mercy Fellowship, we've distilled the great commandment to love your God with all your mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the great commission to go, therefore, into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded. We've brought those together, and when we, meaning Mercy Fellowship, answers the question, why does Mercy Fellowship exist here in Snohomish County in 2023? Our answer to that question is, at Mercy Fellowship, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God, and who love people. Put simply, that's our why. That's our purpose. And it informs, we hope, everything that we do and seek to accomplish as we end this series with uh, Go. If you've got your study guides, it's actually going to be Go Part 1 because I switched it up last week. We're going to see that Jesus' church has a clear mission, but we're also going to see that Jesus' mission has a commissioned church. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Matthew chapter 28 in the New Testament. First book, end of that first book, it'll be up on the screen as well. I'm going to read all of 16 to the end, and then we're just going to talk about it for the rest of our time, okay? Matthew 28, 16. It says, now 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, I mean, this is, like we said, gather, give, grow, 
and go. This is the go. This is the go on mission because Jesus is preeminent. His agenda is our first priority. His mission is our purpose. And so disciples of Jesus go and make disciples of Jesus. That's why we exist. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, well, what does that look like? What can we learn from this text? Like, I mean, this again, seems simple, but also complex. So first, I want us to see the disciples of Jesus worship and respond to the resurrected Jesus. Disciples of Jesus worship and respond to the resurrected Jesus because disciples of Jesus are members of God's family. Okay? How do I get there? Well, verse 16, right, says the 11 disciples went to Galilee. These verses, right, at the end, they're not part of the Sermon on the Mount, They're not teaching in the temple. They're not even the last supper. This is a specific commission that Jesus gave after he had died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, was resurrected, and was appearing to the disciples. It said, we'll talk about it maybe more on Easter, that over the course of 40 days, he appeared to the disciples in many different ways and times. And like, he's like, this is kind of my final, like, what are you going to be about when I am not physically among you at this time. This is what he's saying to him. And, and if you back up a few verses in verse 10, Jesus meets the risen Mary Magdalene. And in verse 10, he says, um, say to them, don't be afraid because they're gonna be, right? I mean, you meet resurrected Jesus, that's, that's pretty intense. Go and tell my, my, my associates, go and tell my partners, Go and tell my employees, go and tell, no, it says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they'll see me. I mean, the New Testament has servant language and that's okay. I mean, I mean, Paul even goes as far as to say, I'm a slave to Christ. But here, Jesus wants us all to know if you are a disciple of Jesus, you're responding to the fact that Jesus is resurrected and you've been brought into a forever family. And so it's a family identified by Jesus and they gather around Jesus. And so these disciples, they go to Galilee. Uh, they go to this mountain called uh, Mount um, Arabel. It's got this awesome kind of view of the Sea of Galilee. They've maybe likely been there before. It was familiar to them. But like, this is a significant moment. It's a significant time. 11 disciples show, show up because, well, if you know the story, one of them, Judas, <laughs> didn't make it past Good Friday, right? So these are the faithful. And you're like, wait, faithful? Okay, these are the ones that are still on the team. Because as we look at Good Friday in a couple weeks and we look at the Easter story, I mean, like none of these guys like nailed it during that time. All of them like these are not your dream team. They all failed in, in horrendous and, and, and serious ways, denying Jesus, rejecting Jesus, all of these things. And it's only after Jesus' resurrection that they are responding in such a way with actual courage, with actual boldness. And even then, there's a bit of trepidation that we'll see in a moment. And so this, this group of 11, they go to Jesus, they meet with him on this mountaintop, and that's where the mission starts in a very clear way. And these guys, like I said, they are unlikely leaders. And yet the church, these commissioned 11, start multiplying right away. 
And it's multiplied now for a couple of thousand years in, in a sense that the course of most of world civilization has changed the last 2,000 years because of the faithful church of Jesus Christ. And I mean, I just, I'll say it again. This is not the dream team. These are not the guys you pick if you're gonna try to not turn the world upside down, but to return the world right side up to the axis it was always intended to be. I mean, these guys, they're not, they're not patriotic landowners like the founding fathers who just write amazing documents, like they do all these things. They're not global political world elites like the World Economic Forum. Uh, you know, Davos trying to, you know, great reset us or whatever, right? I mean, I, you wouldn't want all these guys working on the same shift at Chick-fil-A, let alone like planting a church. I mean, you've got a former tax collector who is a stooge for the Roman Empire. You've got an Antifa-style zealot. You've got some blue-collar fishermen that are always popping their mouths off. These guys, they've they got power struggles. James and John's mom shows up at one point. He's like, hey, Jesus, can you put my sons in charge? These guys weren't in Little League trying to get in. We're talking like 30-year-old dudes. Mom's showing up trying to get him a promotion, right? No, not the dream team, but this is, I mean, Gosh, you wouldn't even want to try to plant a church with these guys. You'd go nuts. But what these guys did is they responded to the resurrected Jesus with obedience. They showed up to the next best step. All right, we're scared. We don't know what's going on. Mary Magdalene says, I saw Jesus, and at some point you're going to go see him on this mountain in Galilee. And they showed up. They just, just followed the next step. In fact, actually, they followed the next step because I think if he, they had laid out all the steps that was going to happen to these guys, nobody would have done it. I mean, Peter famously, like, crucified upside down. John, boiled alive, chucked out an island in Patmos. James, chucked off of a, um, uh, a giant uh, parapet uh, in the temple kind of deal. Like, no, nobody gave him the end game. Just do the next right step. And that's what these guys did. So they go to where Jesus directed them. That's where I want us to see this as well. Disciples of Jesus are worship, worshipers of Jesus' divinity. Okay, they believe Jesus is the Son of God. But they can still process doubt and proceed with hesitation. So I want you to know, as, as disciples of Jesus, we're worshipers of Jesus' divinity who can still process doubt and proceed with a bit of hesitation. Verse 17 says that they worshiped, but some doubted. Some doubted while up on the hill with the resurrected Jesus. None of us here have been so lucky to be in that place in space, but I'm certain that all of us here have had times of doubt, seasons of doubt, questions that we can't answer. Times where we're like, God, what are you doing? Or, or, or in our darker times, God, why did you do that? And so I want you to know this section is so awesome because these disciples knew, served, followed Jesus, struggled with doubt. And that word doubt translates another way into hesitation. That should be so incredibly encouraging for us that, that our faith doesn't have to be jettisoned the moment you have doubt or the moment you have a bit of fear or the moment where you have just some hesitation, maybe where you're even like paralyzed into what your next best step is. 
See, going on mission doesn't require certainty, but it does require faithfulness to follow Jesus on the next best step. You don't need to be certain about all things, but living a life on mission, like living out our purpose, your purpose, our purpose, includes just following faithfully Jesus on the next best step. Like I said, that includes when you can't see the whole path. Again, if they were shown the whole path, I'm sure they probably wouldn't have taken it, but you trust the one who's leading you down the journey. I don't know where this path goes. I don't know what the future holds, but I trust the one who holds the future and I trust the one who's leading me down the path. So going on mission almost always includes a hint of doubt because it is a step of faith. There are risks being taken. Going on mission includes worshiping the risen Jesus, but it can also include a bit of wrestling. Don't not go. Don't not fulfill your purpose just because you find yourself in a place of doubt. And when it says some doubted, Here's what I love as well because I'm seeing this so much around the church and our culture today. It says that some, they, they worshiped, but some doubted, but what they didn't do was leave the hill. They didn't say, well, let me get away from Jesus, people. Let me just get away from the risen Jesus for a while. I'm gonna go process with a bunch of people on Instagram or Twitter. I'm sure they'll have my best interests at heart. Those who doubted remained with Jesus and remained with Jesus' people as they processed their doubt. And that leads to Jesus giving worshipers and doubters an answer for why they would worship and an answer even to their doubts. I think, I think doubt is okay and faithful doubt remains in the presence of Jesus and remains connected to Jesus' people. Otherwise, you're wandering in a wilderness alone looking for something that's going to satisfy when, when Jesus is there with living water, when Jesus is there with, with community and with, with people, with his presence, saying, I've made you, I know you, I've given you purpose. That leads to this. Going on mission means remembering who's in charge. Verse 18, going on mission rem means remembering who's in charge. I, I do believe this. I believe the answer for all of our doubts. I believe what stirs us to greater worship that moves us from hesitation to intentional action is the greatness of God found in Jesus Christ. Jesus knows like the condition of these guys' souls. Like, like he knows where everybody's at. They show up, some worshiping, some doubting. And the first thing Jesus tells them is to remind them who is in charge. He says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's like, I am the king. I have the authority. He's no longer the, the suffering servant. He's no longer the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He is the risen victorious king and he is adorned with all authority and all glory. And he's saying, you can trust where I'm going to lead you because I'm in charge of it all. And so discipleship for us and for anyone begins with not Jesus saying, let me tell you all the things you need to do. 
Let me tell you all the way you need to clean your life up. Let me tell you all the things your, your church needs to do. Jesus begins his final piece of discipleship with these guys, not by telling them what they're going to do, but reminding them who he is. Disciples of Jesus, brothers and sisters in Christ, we always go back to remembering who Jesus is before we talk about who we are and what we do. He says, all authority is mine. He's authority over the entire universe. And then, and, then he, and then he shifts, right? Because he says, I have all authority. Now I can tell you what you're going to do because I'm in charge. He tells them and he tells us what we're going to do because of it. That we exist here because of the Great Commission, that we're here for the Great Commission because Jesus is king with all authority in heaven on earth. And when we say here, we are living on Jesus' mission. He has authority over us and, and he has authority over what we'd call the mission field. The people who need to know and love and serve Jesus. So we can have some confidence he's going to equip and empower us to fulfill that mission he's called us to and that we have a purpose in life. So he begins to say this in verse 19. Go therefore. So because I have all authority, because I'm in charge, because I'm resurrected, because I'm the king of the universe, because I was sent by the Father to you on a mission of reconciliation, I'm now sending you on a mission of reconciliation. Reconciling people to God through the work of Christ, reconciling people one another relationally with forgiveness, at times even restoration, and so because Jesus is sent, we are a sent people. And so that means part of our identity as disciples, as brothers and sisters, as a family, also includes being an ambassador of Christ's kingdom. So part of your identity, part of my identity, part of our identity is to be ambassadors. That means the church is an embassy representing kingdom values to and in a kingdom that is not the kingdom of God. On a mission to invite and encourage people to participate and experience the kingdom of God that includes forgiveness, that includes mercy, that includes grace, that includes justice, and justice ultimately meted out on the cross of Christ. And so... Like, if we forget that we're ambassadors, we start to think we're tourists in, an, in a foreign land. Or maybe sometimes we think that, that that's our primary citizenship. So we have to regularly talk about what it means to be on mission because it can't be assumed. Because he knows that we're inward focused. The reason Jesus has to say go is because he knows that we are so uh, wired for comfort that we like to stay. We like familiar, we like comfortable, we like kind of settling. And you're like, no, no, not me. How many of you right now are sitting in the exact same seat you sat in last week or the week before or the week before that? If it was a show of hands, it'd be like 90% of you guys. Because I know where you sit, right? I see you. And I know when you walk in, you're like, yep, I'm going off to the left over here. I'm going off to the right. I like to sit in the back. Not one of these sits in the front. Right? We like comfortable. 
We like familiar, and, and, and that's okay for, for like periods of rest, for periods of kind of, kind of refreshment and refinement, right, all that stuff. But like he's saying, no, no, I want to challenge you to, to go in and step into places that you are uncomfortable to form relationships you might not be comfortable with, to put yourself out there in ways that might actually lead to rejection. And so, so go, it does mean leaving places of comfort for, for, for places that we're called to be. But it also means, and we need to keep having a broader view, it means as you go and live your life. Because like, you don't have to and some of us should, most of us should not, go sell everything and go to some country you've never heard of with a language you don't speak, with food you can't digest, with water you can't drink, and say, I'm going to go evangelize to them. Well, did you ever talk to anybody at your work or your school or your neighborhood or, your, or Starbucks about Jesus? No. But I totally will when people don't understand what I'm saying or doing or when I'm just sweating all the time because I'm not made for this climate, right? So some of us, all of us are called to go on mission. But for some of us, that, that actually means staying and considering intentionally how we live our lives. He says later on in verse 19 that you're going to make disciples of all nations. We live right now in an incredibly diverse and pluralistic culture. So to reach the nations can simply mean engaging with our neighborhoods, engaging with the cities that we're in and the places that God has us. And so all of us, when it says make disciples of all nations, I want us to know this, that all of us are disciples and are all making disciples. The question is, who are you a disciple of? And what type of disciples are you making? Right? We're all learners soaking stuff in. We're all teachers sharing out stuff in, in what we say and how we live our lives. So he's saying, no, no, I, I, I don't want you to just to, to be on any mission. I want you to be on a specific mission. To, to make disciples means a disciple of Jesus increasingly submits to the authority and lordship of Jesus in every aspect of life and encourages others to do likewise. I'll say it one more time. A disciple of Jesus increasingly submits to the authority and lordship of Jesus in every aspect of life and encourages others to do likewise. So if you are a disciple, you will disciple. Again, the question is just what type of disciples are you making? Where have you been called to make disciples? Like what's your primary responsibility? See, he's telling this to the church. He says, you're going to go make disciples of all nations. And I think when we consider a mission that big of, wow, like the whole world needs to reflect the glory of God. Everyone needs to hear about Jesus. That is so daunting. And sometimes, I'll just confess, like, you ever have like a big project in your house and you wake up on a day off and you're like, I think my next best step on this big project is to pretend it doesn't exist and go do something else. Maybe I'm the only one. Or maybe just laundry, right? I don't know, whatever it is. I'll just pretend there's a pile, just move the pile, right? And you don't see it, right? So like big projects are daunting for us. And so I love that Jesus doesn't pull just Andrew aside and say, hey, Andrew, it's on you, man. You're gonna make disciples of all nations. No, he tells 11, really diverse group of guys, 
going out to all nations. And so when we talk about this big, like world-changing, history-changing mission to align the kingdom of this earth with the kingdom of heaven and earth with Jesus who made it, it is like the greatest group project in the history of group projects. Only unlike your group projects at school, even if we flake on it, we're still going to get an A, right? Because Jesus is the one who's ultimately going to fulfill it in and through us. And so we have to start thinking and continually think beyond ourselves, but we also need to think multi-generationally. Like this commission to make disciples of all nations, like the 120, 30, 40 of us, like we ain't going to do it on our own. It's going to take dozens and dozens and dozens of more churches here in Snohomish County. So you take hundreds and hundreds of more churches in our state, thousands of more churches across our nation, hundreds of thousands of churches across the world. And so we just keep going. And we just ask, where are we called to make disciples? Where am I called to make disciples? Well, I've got six kids, so I should probably start with them. Right? If, you, if, you're, if you're married, you and your spouse, like, oh, wait, I should, I should be discipling my own heart too. Maybe I should be reading God's word on a regular basis. Maybe I should be remembering and hearing the gospel on a regular basis so I remember who Jesus is, who I am, what Jesus did for me, who I am now in Christ, how that encourages and empowers me to be who God meant me to be. So it's a massive mission, but we can think small. Where and who has God put in your life and place? And as we think multi-generationally, think about the designers of cathedrals who laid out the plans, maybe saw the first stones go in, but where generations came and went, where people built and never saw it finished until finally one generation did. You and I and us, we may end up sowing seeds, laying foundations where we will never get to see the full impact on this side of glory. And we need to be more than okay with that. This is where God has me. This is who God has me with. This is the time and place he's called me to be. And so we just ask ourselves, what is our next best step? And Jesus says this in verse 19 again. Baptize them. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As we go and make disciples of all nations, we are actually calling people. Who? All people. All nations. This is a universal mission that has a specific application. Anyone and everyone should be called to know and love and follow Jesus. And our mission will be specifically effective for those who pledge allegiance to Jesus, are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who believe in, love, serve the God of the Bible. They pledge their allegiance to the God of the Bible through Jesus, through baptism. Where we see our, our, our death of self as we're buried in the waters, our life being identified with Christ in resurrection as we come out of the waters. That is, that is why it is usually one of the first best next steps for anyone whose faith and trust is in Jesus to be baptized, signifying the beginning of a new journey. 
that we, you and I, that we are on mission to live lives and see lives and eternities changed by and for Jesus. And then he says this, following conversion, following them, placing their allegiance in Jesus, their next best step and your next best step is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That a disciple of Jesus, I mean, it needs to be somebody that says, yeah, I trust Jesus. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I trust him as my Savior and I follow him as my Lord. But then he says, hey, you're, you're gonna have to talk to them about what I commanded. And I love that word command. And when I say love, it's challenging. Because what Jesus doesn't say is, okay, baptize them, give them some assurance of eternal salvation, and then they can kind of pick and choose what they want from my teachings. Like, like it's like a burrito bar, right? Where you're like, well, do I want corn salsa today? I always want guac. Do I want double meat? Well, of course I want double meat, right? No, he's like, you got to eat the whole burrito. He's like, all of my teachings. And again, this gets like grade school simple and grad school complex because that is the encompassing umbrella of love God and love people. So what he's doing is he's setting you and I as disciples of Jesus and those who become disciples of Jesus as on a new trajectory of lifelong learners. Learning the commands of Jesus, studying the commands of Jesus, and I don't just mean the red letters in your Bible, I mean, I mean the Bible, all of, all of it. And then applying it, and then getting it wrong, and then course correcting, and starts and fits, and, and growth, and periods of dryness, and everything in between. Lifelong learners. Where we're learning more and more about who Jesus is and how we are to live lives in response. And we learn about the commands of Jesus. He doesn't say, teach them my commands. He says, teach them my commandments and to observe all that I commanded, meaning actually do them. So um, Pastor Francis Chan years ago said this way. He's like, you know, hey, I, I told my daughter uh, to clean her room. And she came back and she said, dad, I studied uh, what you said. Clean my room. And I, and I translated it into Greek and Hebrew, and it means this. And, and then I've got this really cool, like, analogy about cleaning my room. And I've got some really cool wisdom about cleaning my room. And he's like, clean your room! Like, do the things! Like, love God and love people! Like, some of that as disciples means there's going to be things we used to do that it's time to abstain from. It's also going to mean there's things that we didn't used to do that we're going to now do. It means walking out regular rhythms of, of confession and repentance, experiencing forgiveness, walking in faithfulness, periods of faithlessness where we know that, praise the Lord, we're saved by the grace of Jesus and not by our works. And so... Disciples of Jesus are learners and doers of Jesus' words and ways. And there's going to be some commandments and some aspects. I mean, 
This book, in Jesus' words, in the teaching of the church for years and years and years, has lots to say about sexuality, has lots to say about gender, has lots to say about politics, has lots to say about how you spend your money, has lots to say about your marriages, has lots to say about your parenting, has lots to say about anger in your heart, has lots to say about the words you say, has lots to say about what you consume and what you don't consume. Wow. Do I need to nail all that right away? In fact, I mean, none of us are going to be able to do that perfectly. There's going to be some commands and some aspects of following Jesus that just seem intuitive to you. Maybe because, you know, you've just already been wired that way or you've been taught that at a young age or it's just kind of drilling. And there's other aspects that you're just going to be incredibly hostile to. And that's okay. And when we doubt those things, we go back and we continue to dwell in the presence of Jesus with Jesus' people. And we remember he has all authority. We remember who we are, our purpose, and we repent and we walk in obedience. So disciples, I want you to hear this. Disciples display progress, not perfection. We can display progress, not perfection. All of us start our journeys of discipleship in very, very different places. For myself, I grew up in the church and I was a prodigal son. So like later in my, my 20s, I had, there's a lot of stuff I had to repent of and, and walk in a different direction. I've got other friends who, man, they just faithfully love Jesus all through high school and college and, and their parents had built like strong ministries in their area and then they built on top of that and have had amazingly fruitful ministries. That's fantastic, praise God. All you and I are called to do is to take the next right step. Sometimes that's repentance. Sometimes that's continuing to walk in faithfulness. But we grow in submission to the Lordship of Jesus. So that's what we say here, that we are changed by Jesus' grace. And then this, disciples who make disciples, we live lives that are imitatable, not unattainable. We live lives that are, that are imitatable, not unattainable. See, Jesus doesn't tell them, you're my disciples, now go replicate yourselves and make your own disciples. No, he says, go make disciples, uh, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, always pointing people back to Jesus. And James and Peter and John and Paul, all throughout the New Testament, to, they're constantly saying in the things in the letters, things like, hey, put off these sins. Put on these behaviors because of who Christ is. That's okay. But then even Paul tells the Corinthian church, like the most jacked up church in the New Testament, he's like, hey, I'd love to tell you to follow Jesus. And we should follow Jesus, don't hear me wrongly. But Paul just says to them, hey, follow me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Meaning, in the things that I do that are Christ-like, you should do those. But when and if leaders or parents or bosses or teachers or politicians or whoever else, like, does something hypocritical, you don't ditch your faith. You say, well, they weren't imitating Christ at this point. We're all called to imitate Christ. So I'm going to keep doing that. So we live lives that are imitatable, not un attainable. That should lead us to places of humility, to know none of us are perfect, but we consistently point others to the one who is, and that's Jesus. 
who while we were yet sinners died for us so that we could live a new, forgiven, and renewed life with him and for him. I don't know what your next best step is. But Jesus does. And maybe it's for you, it's being baptized for the first time, pledging allegiance to Jesus. Maybe it's to just start regularly spending time in God's word. Maybe it's going back to those rhythms of gather, give, grow, go on mission. Maybe there's somebody who's been on your heart for a while. They just The simple step of inviting them to church is what you need to do. Or to tell them, hey, I'm praying for you. Is there something I can pray for you about? And just letting them know that there's a God worthy of appealing to, worthy of petitioning, worthy of being in his presence. See, Jesus ends it with this. Because, man, I'll just tell you, this is a big, daunting commission. But he puts some real wind in our sails with how he closes. He says this. Behold, I love that New Testament word, behold, to really focus on, to really, really consider, to really, with weight, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. See, we think that we're on some race where Jesus is at the starting line, firing the gun off, saying go. Maybe he's cheering us on a little bit. And he's like, hey, okay, I'm gonna go get a hot dog. You go finish your race. I'll be there at the end. Hope it goes well for you. No, Jesus is like, he's like, no, I'm running this race with you. You are not alone. In fact, you write the little footprints in the sand poster, like I'm carrying you the whole time. Okay, that's a really, really old reference for cheesy Christian stuff in the 80s. Some of you had homes like that and you weren't allowed to watch R-rated movies. It's okay, right? Yeah. But he's like, no, I'm with you. Don't just go do your best, hope you figure it out. He says, no, no, go on mission and he wants us to have comfort and confidence. He's gonna be with us every step of the way so that you and I and us can always know you're not alone. We're not alone. We're never left alone. Yeah, maybe you have some friends. Yeah, you have your family. Yeah, we have each other, Lord willing, as the church. We have other churches that we're friends and partner with. But we have Jesus who doesn't just promise to be with us someday. He says he is with us now, will be with us at the end of the age. And so all of a sudden, our doubt and hesitation and the overwhelming nature of this commission start to fade away as we begin to settle in to the truth and consider that Jesus is there and he says, Take my hand. Take your next best step. Follow me. My grace is sufficient for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what is your next best step? Just believe for, for us as a church, if we've tasted and seen the Lord of, is good, if we've experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should desire to share it. We should be encouraged that Jesus has all authority, that he sent us to make disciples. He's with us now and always. So we should just be people who have great courage as we go on mission continually and increasingly as people who trust Jesus. Let's pray.